My name's Joe, and I'm definitely an alcoholic. He stole my thunder. Because, you know, you got this red-headed, freckled black lady from South Carolina. Well, that, that kind of makes sense. But you look at your schedule, and you say, Joe N. from Madison, Alabama, and this little Mexican gets up here. Now, what in God's name is that? I'm a... Uh, I'm originally from Las Cruces, New Mexico. I got sober in Albuquerque and uh, been in, Al in Alabama for about 15 years. Um, you got to say thank you first because that's what you're supposed to do. But not because I'm supposed to. You guys, this is the second time I've been up north in this area, and your hospitality is superior. The way you treat people... It's second to nothing. It's second to nothing. And so you pat yourselves on the back for all of that. Pat, thank you. Uh, Cookie and I spoke at a conference, I don't remember, a number of about five or six years ago, and she told me, I'm going to get you to go for State Roundup. I'm going to get you to go for State Roundup. So, Cookie, thank you, and thank you, Pat, for asking me, and thank you for the committee and everybody else. Um, now, kind of, Angie, man, God, I, I could just say ditto and sit down. I'm an alcoholic to the little hair on my toes. I'm, I, you, you'll probably get that by the end of this talk. You'll say, that guy's sick. Um, but, I, but of course, you know, we're products of the, the later 80s and 90s and so forth. And, uh, and so there are some drugs in my talk as well. Um, which kind of leads me back to how I got here. I kind of wanted to share this little story with you. This friend of mine and I were sitting around, it was about 10, 15, I'll never forget it, in the morning. We were waiting for days of our lives. <laughs> we were sitting there and we were, I can sing too, Angie, you know. Got dozens, dozens of friends and the fun never ends. That is as long as I'm buying. Anyway, so this guy and I were sitting there. We're waiting for Days of Our Lives to come on because we never missed an episode. And so we were getting really prepared. Of course, we've been drinking already and smoking some dope. And he had this big, huge, fat cat. And, I mean, this cat was monster, man. It was like, it was like, a, like a bobcat in his living room, you know? I, and here's another thing. Let me, another asterisk. I tend to embellish a little bit. I don't know if you all have that kind of a problem, but I kind of, if it was a little kitten, he was a bobcat. He's a mountain lion. Anyway, but this thing sat up above on the couch, and it sat right behind us. And it, I, I'm, not, I'm a dog person, you know, and this cat's kind of in the way. So this friend of mine says, watch, check this out, dude. And so he puts his beer down on the table, and, of course, there's all the other paraphernalia, and there's a can of lighter fluid. So he takes this lighter fluid... He says, watch this. And he takes his lighter foot, he puts it on his finger, and he touches the cat on the nose. And that cat, man, starts running around the table, running, running, running. I'm like, oh, my God. I'm, now, I'm pretty buzzed already. It's 10, 15. We've been up for a while. And I'm sitting there watching. Then all of a sudden, that cat just falls over. So I look at him, you know, and I'm looking. I'm holding my beer. I'm looking at him. I'm looking at the cat. I'm looking back and forth. I'm saying, is it dead? He said, no, it ran out of gas. <laughs> I ran out of gas on March 17th of 1987. I just ran out of gas.
I'm supposed to share with you in a general way what happened, what it's like, what happened, yeah, da 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 da, da all that stuff. I, I'm, I'm, and what I think I'm supposed to do is kind of share with you the idea of hopefully I get this thing that one person out there, that one of you, that there's some little puppy out there who's just, he doesn't belong here. He's looking around, he's looking at this guy, and he's, oh, hey, my funny little cat joke, you know. And, but I don't, I'm not like these people. And in some way or another, what I think it is that I'm supposed to do in the 12 Step of Alcoholics Anonymous is carry a message to you that says, you may not be like us, but if you are, if you are, there's hope here. I, I have not been more excited to speak at a conference than I have for this one right here, 12 Steps to Freedom, because that's exactly what this is about, freedom. So what I hope to share... What I want to share with you is, is I want to share with you this spiritual experience that I had. And my wife and I were at a, I don't know if it was an AA conference or if it were at just somewhere we were at. And um, we had, uh, she had gotten up and she had brushed her teeth. And I had gotten up and I went in uh, to go brush my teeth first thing in the morning. And I mistakenly grabbed her toothbrush. Ugh, now listen, there, listen, where's Angie? Oh, yeah, right. Don't act like you've never done that. You know when you slept over where you weren't supposed to be and didn't have your own toothbrush? You know what I'm talking about. And you got that mouth that's like... Well, I mistakenly picked up my wife's toothbrush. And I pick it up and I start to brush my teeth. And something is incredibly wrong with this scenario. Not the fact that I've got my wife's toothbrush. The fact that I realized my wife uses hot water to brush her teeth. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that's wrong. brush your teeth with hot water? You just don't do that. Right? Now the hot water brushers are saying, well, I, I, but that's what you think. It's kind of like an Al-Anon thing, you know. But <laughs> But if you're an alcoholic like me, you don't do that. Why? Because I said so. <laughs> Pure and simple, because I said so. Because for me, it's just wrong to do it any other way. You do it different than the way I do it. And I had a spiritual experience at that moment. I didn't run to her and tell her how wrong she was. I didn't run to her to tell her. I just thought to myself, you know what? There is no right or wrong way to brush your teeth. Hot water, cold water, it doesn't matter. What I hope is that I share with you through my experience, strength, and hope that maybe if you think you're different, you're not. And that maybe, just maybe, there's another way to look at this kind of deal. And that maybe you might have a spiritual experience or psychic change that says, I'm going to brush my teeth with hot water tomorrow. <laughs> now, you won't do it. 
Now, I'm from Las Cruces, New Mexico, way down south. We're about 35 miles north of the border. Now, I have known since I was a very, very, I don't, well, I don't know. I say when I was a little kid, but somewhere along the line, I always knew that there was something different about me. I didn't fit like most people. You see, where I come from, we don't have a birthday party. Birthday parties on Saturday night is Joe's party. You know, hey, everybody's going to come over for Joe's party. But we don't have a party. We have a fiesta. <laughs> it's like the party's on Saturday and they tap the keg on Wednesday. You know? <laughs> They're going to kill a pig for this little three-year-old boy. And there will be far more adults at this party for this three-year-old than there will be kids. And it's and, and 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 the women will be inside and they'll be rolling out the tortillas and making the beans and rice and the men are outside and the men are outside with that beer. And they're out there with that keg and they're out there and that pig sitting in that trailer and he's getting ready to take that bullet, you know, and the guys are sitting out there talking. Now, I really, really... For some reason or another, I used to sit out there and I would gawk at these guys. And I would look and there was my hero. There was my Uncle Bob. And there was Uncle Billy. There was Johnny and Leo. And they were sitting around saying, you know, and as they passed that beer around, I noticed something always happened. It seemed like the level or the intensity of the party always got a little bit bigger. A little bit more louder. And it seemed like somebody had a bigger point to make. And the fish got bigger. You know? And now all of a sudden, my Uncle Bob is over there. He's talking about, yeah, well, I was sitting up there, you know, and I was sitting on that rock. And they're talking about that big deer hunting story. And, and I'm sitting there, and I'm looking down at him. And there he is. He's this big old 18-point monster, man. And, and I'm getting ready to take my shot. And the gun jams. So I'm sitting there, and my little heart's going, what'd you do, Uncle Bob? What'd you do? What'd you do? He said, I jumped on him, and I stabbed him. Oh! Everybody's, oh, my God, you know, he stabbed the Uncle Bob doesn't just kill deer, he chokes them, you know? And I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking to myself, deep down inside of me, I'm thinking, man, I just want to be like my Uncle Bob. If I could just be like Uncle Bob, God, when I get big, when I get big, I want to be like Uncle Bob. And then somebody breaks his tequila open, you know, and this tequila bottle starts getting passed around. And now, it's not just... Choking deers, you know, it's like, I mean, there, it's, oh, and then they start talking about the ladies. I still haven't figured out how they got all that in in 30 seconds. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking to myself, you know, oh man, I gotta be like these guys. I gotta be like these guys. A tequila goes around and the intensity's even louder and everybody's, and all of a sudden, like a shot across the fire, Leo yells out, Johnny, where's my lawnmower, dude? <laughs> then there's this dead silence at this party. The intensity's gotten twice as high, but the silence, could, you can cut it. Because everybody at the party knows that Johnny broke Leo's lawnmower. Everybody but Johnny. <laughs> and everybody else knows there's going to be some blows thrown here in just a second. And the next thing I know, Leo and Johnny are rolling around in the fire, and this big, huge party that's going to happen on, on Saturday isn't a big deal anymore. And I sat there, and I looked, and inside of me, all I ever wanted to be was Bob. All I ever wanted to be, to, oh, God, if I could just be like Leo. 
And the last thing in the world I wanted to be like was Leo. Same thing would happen at my house. You see, my dad would come home at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, and it would be, you know, there'd be that stumbling in, and there'd be my mom sitting up waiting for him, and I'd hear that. Where you been? You know, what were you doing? Ah. Then I'd hear the, the, the lying and the cheating and the fighting and the screaming. And then I'd hear the punches. Now, my dad was my hero. And the next minute, I wake up in the morning and I find my mom and she's got these black eyes and these bruises. And I'm thinking to myself, I hate him with everything that I am. And I'll never be like that. I'll never be like that. I'll never be like that. And I remember thinking to myself as I grew up that that I'm this way because where I came from. I'm this way because I'm different than everybody else. You see, if you knew what I was really like inside, if you really knew what I came from, what would you think of me? And so I always thought that I was really, really different. And, and, I, and I, I, this little story that I tell, I believe that God has this giant baby-making machine. And there's this big machine here, and he sits here with this foot pedal. And what he does is he pops these little babies out. And he just shoots them on up. And then these little, like, Oompa Loompa looking dudes, you know, kind of like in the Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, come up, Oompa, Oompa, Oompa dee doo. And he sits there and he pushes the little pedal and these little ba- and these little Oompas catch him. Oompa, Oompa. And he walks over, puts a baby in a bassinet and he looks over across the room and on the other side there's another little Oompa Loompa in his little overalls and he says, you ready? He says, I'm ready. And so the Oompa comes over and he brings his book. And he brings this book and he tucks it in that bassinet and they send that baby on his way. February 3rd, 1962. God hit that machine. Baby came out. Oompa caught him. Walked over. Put him in the bassinet. Is it ready? What do you mean we're ready? I'm out of books. So what do you mean we're out of books? He says, I don't know. I don't know. There's no more. So what do we do? What do we do? He said, well, send him on his way. Send him on his way. And on that day, they sent me on my way without my book. And you see, the way I see it is, is that everybody got a book. Everybody else but me got a book. And that book is the book of life. And everywhere, and you can turn the pages and it'll tell you exactly where you're going to meet that love of your life. And you're going to have 2.3 children. You're going to have a German shepherd. Your son will play football for Minnesota, blah, 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 blah. And, you know, you'll be happy ever after. But I spend every waking day wondering, who am I? Was she the one? Did you, am I on your page? You know, hey, maybe I'm on yours. I don't know who I'm supposed to be with. And so I'm, I'm driven by this idea that I gotta be, I gotta be, you know, and I'm sitting here. But, and so, and couple that with where I came from and the people, and those crazy people, good God, I don't have a chance. So one day, I don't know how it happened, in the middle of a cotton field in Las Cruces, New Mexico, me and my, bro- me and my cousin stole a bunch of beer from my grandpa. And we were sitting out there in that cotton field, Mont Liquor Tall Boys, case, for two 12-year-olds or so. <laughs> and I remember sitting out there in that cotton field in that hot day, and I remember popping the top. Now, you all, I, don't, I can't really honestly tell you what I had for lunch yesterday. But I can tell you about that day in the cotton field. I can tell you because if I sit here and think about it long enough, I can feel the fizz in my nose. Because I remember as I sat there, I pinched my nose and I poured it back. The bull. 
That should have been the first clue. Um, and I poured it back again, and I poured it back again, and then it was like, It was like the clouds opened up and the pearly gates, they, they just kind of... <laughs> dropped that book. And I got cozy and I got comfy and for the first time in my life I didn't feel like I... Something was wrong inside of me for the first time in my life. You see, I didn't know that I was restless, irritable, and discontent. I didn't, you don't know that. You're 12 years old, man. I didn't know that I would... The sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. I didn't know that. I had never read that yet. That wasn't required reading in the sixth grade, you know? <laughs> I didn't know that, but what I know is is that for the first time in my life, it didn't matter where I came from. It didn't matter what I felt like anymore. It didn't matter what I looked like. It didn't matter that, you know, that we were poor. It didn't matter at all. It just went away. You know, you don't become an everyday alcoholic at 12 years old, but something set, it snapped the trigger inside of me. The phenomenon of craving was developed and, man, I could not get enough because if one was good, two was better. And if two is good, the end of this case can only mean euphoria. And so I started, I started off on this, this, I don't know, it was like this trigger was flipped in, on in me. Now, it says in there, it says that men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. It says, too, then the sensation is so elusive that they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. Now, you see, I have a, it's a, 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 another little story about that, another aside. I got sober in 1987. And in 1988, some of you all might remember, and if there's any fight fans, Angie, I'm sure, would remember this. <laughs> Marvelous, marvelous Marvin Hagler and Sugar Ray Leonard had the big fight. Now, whoo, that was big. That was when boxing was boxing, baby. And I was the Marvin Hagler fan of the life. I do the fan club. I, oh, Marvin Hagler, the shaved head, the chiseled body, came from rough background. He was a prisoner, you know. Oh, oh, he's gonna kill Sugar Ray. Can hardly, they're probably going to have to carry him on this. I'm just, I can hardly wait. Now, I've been sober a year, over a year when that fight came out. And I'm watching that fight, and I'm thinking, I can't believe what the judges are saying. They're talking about, you know, we got that round 10-9 Sugar Ray. And I'm thinking, so what? You, you're crazy, man. I mean, it does not, no, no. In the ninth round, Sugar Ray knocked out Marvin Hagler, and I argued the fact that he was ripped off. <laughs> that fight should have been stopped in the sixth round, you know, when that Hagler hit him one time. <laughs> and I've got this idea that, that Hagler was ripped off. Now, you know, a few years ago, they came out with this ESPN Classic thing, right? 
And so they replay all the old fights and all things like that. And I just happened to see that it was on. And I'm watching this fight. It was like, there's a glitch in the matrix, you know. <laughs> I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, Sugar Ray beat his ass. But I'll tell you this, I'd go to the grave. I would have gone to the grave defending Marvin Hagler. I would have gone to the grave. You see, I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, and self-seeking, self-pity. I step on the toes of my fellows and they retaliate seemingly without provocation. I'm defending something that I perceive to be a certain way because it's the way I want it to be. You don't brush your teeth with hot water. Hagler won that fight. Yeah, he got knocked out, but that's just a minor detail. <laughs> Men and women drink essentially because they like the effect produced by alcohol. To them, the sensation so elusive that they cannot, after a time, differentiate the true from the false. And you see, I could no longer differentiate the true from the false. And I thought, I thought that that meant when I was drinking. But I was a year sober when that fight happened, and I was 15 years sober when I saw the replay. <laughs> and the whole time I was sober, I'd have defended Hagler. Now, the reason I shared that is, is because this is just one little boxing match of my life. <laughs> oh, think about when Celeste dumped me for the prom. Think about how my football coach called the wrong play when I told him what we should have done. <laughs> Think about how my boss gave somebody else the promotion instead of me because I didn't show up that day. <laughs> and on and on and on and on. You see, my life is an alibi. My life is a rationalization. I make excuses for everything. I'm this way because I'm Mexican, don't you get it? I'm this way because of Uncle Bob. I'm this way because Celeste. I'm this way because of Hagler. I'm this. There was always something in my life. Always something in my life that I'm always defending. I always look for this way to try to find my way through things, you know, but I can't figure it out. I'm always trying to manipulate the outcomes. I got this idea that somehow inside of me, if I could only fix... My most favorite sentence in the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, says, Is he not the victim of the delusion that he can wrest happiness and satisfaction out of this world if only he manages well? I got this idea that says, If I could only manage, if I could only fix things right, then I won't be this way anymore. You know, I bought... Now, I got sober in the back of a 1987 banana yellow LTD, uh, no, in 1981. I'm sorry, I got sober in 87. It was an 81 LTD Ford station wagon. You all remember them? The ones, the big old woody panels on the side and stuff? That was my house. You'd, you could tell. You could tell this house because it was crashed in on all three sides. I had to crawl out of the back window to get in to drive it. Now... I get sober, and I've got a few years in. I've, you know, 
Things have gotten good. And I've got this job and I've got credit. <laughs> Figure that. <laughs> and I go and I buy this brand new truck. Brand new. S10 little, you know, this little Chevy small truck. Extended cab, CD player, power windows, cruise control, three miles. Smell the a new car. <sighs> Full tank of gas. And, you know, I just... <laughs> God, you're so good. Alcoholics Anonymous, you're just... You've changed my life. I don't know about somebody like me deserve this. Oh, my, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm bawling like a little baby. I'm getting ready to pull out of this dealership. I pull out of the dealership on Lehman Ferry onto Drake... I get to, I, on, on Drake Avenue, I turn on the Lehman Ferry, I come up to the light, and I'm sitting here just overwhelmed with this God-conscious presence of the gift of God and Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I'm just shaking, and I'm sitting and I look, and all of a sudden I'm sitting at this red light, and this big black Z71 4x4 extended cab with chrome everywhere. Roll bars, lights, and this little hot blonde that looks like you sitting next to this guy. <laughs> and I'm sitting in my little truck thinking... <laughs> man, if I had that truck, I'd be happy, man. <laughs> you see, for this alcoholic, enough is never enough. Enough is not good enough. I'm the victim of the delusion that I'll be happy when I manage well. And that delusion says that as long as I can fix everything on the outside, I'll be okay on the inside. It'll make the way, it'll make the, all the hurts and the pains in the, in the past and my growing up and this and that and all of the rationalization will make it go away as soon as I have the right job. As soon as I have the right lady. As soon as I have enough money. As soon as I have the right truck. As soon as I have... And on and on and on and on. But the analogy I use is kind of like that donkey. You know, you're leading him around with a carrot and that carrot sticking out in front of him. You know, and you, anywhere you want him to go, you just kind of hold that stick out in front of him and it just kind of, he just goes wherever you need him. Well, I'm kind of the same way. See, I've got this carrot hanging out in front of me and it just leads me where I want to go. The only difference between me and the donkey is that I'm holding my own stick. And every time I think I'm just close enough, it moves again. But I'll be happy when I get it. I'll be happy when I get it. And I got this idea that, you know, that's, that's the way it's supposed to be. Well, I, you know, I, I need relief during that. There, you just can't do that all the time. <laughs> As you can well imagine... You just, you just kind of get a little tense and a little worked up and a little restless, irritable, and discontent. And so I drink. I drink because the sense of ease and comfort comes at once every time I do that. 
Every time I do that. Good again. Good again. And every time I do that, it just continues and continues and continues. And the cycle gets worse and worse and worse. And I try to find the right wife and she's not the right one. And then I wake up one day and she's sitting there and she's got black eyes and I'm wondering how in the world did you, what happened to you? And then they tell me, well, don't you remember? And no. And I grew up to become everything I said I'd never be. How did I do that? I never wanted, what Angie said earlier, I never wanted to, if there was anything I didn't want to be, it was that. Yet here I am doing the things I don't want to do. My, oh God, I love it. If a mere code of morals and better philosophies were sufficient to overcome alcoholism, many of us would have done it years ago. I didn't want to be what I was. I didn't want to keep on doing what I kept on doing, but I kept on doing it anyway. Because the relief was greater. See, the, there's this, I tell the people I sponsor all the time, the consequences of not drinking become greater than the consequences of taking the drink. When you reach that point, and you're in here, and you come in here for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, if you last that long, without working the steps, those look, it's going to happen. Do I blame you? No, because I did the same thing. You'll drink again. The sense of ease and comfort that comes at once. You've got to have it. And I keep on doing the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results. I got married. I got divorced. That, that girl had a... a she had a, a son. She had my son, and I've, I've never seen him. I've never met him. Uh, I was a failure. Everything I, I just, God, I just, what a scumbag I am. And so it'd get tight, and I'd drink again. It'd get tight, and I'd drink again. I keep on doing the same thing over and over. I ended up in a treatment center in El Paso. And I was in this treatment center, and, and I watched these guys, you know, and, and, and they took us to these meetings, and, and I was like, oh, wow, I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> Figure that. Never got that one before. And, and so I became, I became this, like, go-to guy, you know. I'm the alcoholic little protege. They would even use me in a commercial. And, you know, oh, step one, powerless over alcohol. <laughs> That's me, baby. Anytime I drink, I'm crazy. Unmanageable. Oh, my God. Don't even know when the last time I paid a bill was. You know, ah, oh, that, yeah. Come to believe in God. I was raised Catholic. I even rang the bells, you know. <laughs> That's kind of like for those other people. And went to these meetings. Well, when I got out of treatment, they sent me to this meeting up in Las Cruces. And I walked into this meeting, and there were four people in this room. The, gear, the girl that was chairing the meeting... She was punk before Madonna was. I'm talking about this girl was like, I mean, out there. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, you know, I may have not gotten a book, but I think this girl's still stuck in the machine somewhere. There's something desperately wrong with this chick. Well, she finishes. It goes to the next one. The next girl starts talking, and she starts talking about, she looks normal. I mean, she looks like she got a book and then some. Somebody else's, you know? Probably did. And I mean, she just looked just like this beautiful, perfectly normal little girl. And she starts talking. (laughs) I am not like this woman at all. 
And then the next guy starts talking. Oh, my name is Ron. You know, all I know is you just quit drinking, you don't drink, you change a little, and things get better. Hmm. That's what they said in the treatment center, you know? So maybe I ought to hook up with that dude right there. And then it comes to this next guy. And there's this guy sitting in the corner in this big, gigantic, yellow pillow chair. Now, you know this guy's there because you can smell him before you ever get there. He's got hair that's matted like a dog's. He's got glasses that are so thick, I really still can't believe to this day that he could actually see through them. They had black tape on, th- on the nose piece and on the both sides. My name is Bob, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm the last of the real hobos. I'm sober by the grace of God. Hello, dude. You are an alcoholic, man. (laughs) Now, this loony toot over here, I don't know what she's doing here. That lady, I don't know. This guy, just don't drink and change a little. He's going to be okay. But this guy needs this place. And I'm not like you people. You see, I wish it was just about taking a drink. But I don't have that kind of a problem. I got issues. I've got things that are deep-seated. Bob, you know, and, and my... Johnny and Leo and my mom and my dad and, and, and how she left me standing there and, oh, and the kid and the money and, you know, like the dope deal that I got into and, and I, oh my God, how am I going to get out of that? Like, you know, the guy fronted me some dope and I was going to sell it, but I didn't because I smoked it before I got there. <laughs> you got drinking problems, I got dope dealing problems. Like, I'm not a dope dealer. Like, I need money to get my license back. You see, if I could only get my license... See, and that's what I was going to do. I was just going to sell the dope, take the extra cash, go get my license, get my wife back, everybody's going to... And we'll we'll have the German Shepherd. And everything will be okay. And you, you just don't drink and change a little, and he needs this place, and those two, God will help send them to a psychiatrist or something. But I'm not like you all. And so what would happen is, is I'd come in, and I'd go back out. And I'd come in and I'd go back out. I'd come in and I'd go back out and I'd listen to you all and I'd go back and I'd li- and I'd go back out there and I'd try to fix, I'd try to fix and I, you just, I, I can't get enough. How do I get her back with a minimum wage job? How do I get my license back? How, how do I pay? And then y'all don't go to that side of town. I, oh, <laughs> now, and I'm going back, I'm in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. And I've got this idea that somehow or another, if I could just fix it all, if I could just fix it all, then it'd be okay. I'm sitting in a bar. <laughs> Funny thing about that. I'm sitting in this bar, and this little girl walks up to me, grabs my hand, and says, You're Mexican, let's dance. I said, Hell, let's get married, and I'll beat the hell out of you, and you're not my kid, and I'll never see you again either. She said, Okay. And that's exactly what happened. And she had my daughter. And I don't even, I have, no, I have no idea where my daughter is to this day. And I come home one day, and I, and I come home, and my mom says, You know, I just, I love you with all my heart, but I can't watch you do this. Well, me and that one get back together. And there's kind of like this little glimmer of hope. And, and we're going to get back together. And I tell her, Look, I'm done. I'm an alcoholic and I'm going to meetings and I'm never, ever, never, ever going to drink again. Never. 
So she says, okay, well, you know, if you'll not drink, then okay. She said, you know, it, it's when you drink, you're crazy, man. I said, yeah, I know. But you're not so bad when you smoke pot. <laughs> really? <laughs> Thank you, higher power, you know? And so <laughs> it was God's will, I'm sure. And so... So now I'm going to meetings, I'm smoking a little joint, a little pot now and then, and, you know, just working minimum wage. I can't even afford to buy diapers. I can't drink. I don't know where she She doesn't want to move in with me, but I can't move her in with me and my car. And And I just, on Christmas Eve of 1986, they were supposed to show up and they never did. And that was the last time I saw them. On now, the thing that was different was is that this time I started taking an abuse. I said, hey, no, I can't drink. I can't drink. I can't drink. So I'm going to eat these little white pills, go to these meetings, and I'm not going to drink. So I'm taking these white pills every day. And New Year's Eve comes along, and the consequences of not taking a drink were greater than the consequences of taking a drink. And I sat there and I rationalized, and I thought to myself, well, surely one drink on an abuse can't hurt. Not one. And I share this every time I speak. I don't know if it's for you or why I do it, but I got to tell you, because my perception is a little skewed. (laughs) Remember Circle K's came out with that Thirst Buster campaign when they first came out with those big old 64-ounce glasses? Well, I had one of those big old cups, and I poured a whole fifth of Tanqueray in that thing. And it'll fit. And I splashed some tonic in there and squeezed the lime, New Year's Eve. And I thought to myself, and the reason I share this with you is, is I truly, honest to God, will tell you, I thought to myself, surely one drink on Annabee's can hurt. <laughs> and I hit that thing and... <sighs> the sense of ease and comfort... God, did I need that sense of ease and comfort. God, did I need that sense. That feeling that it was just going to be okay. And it was for that moment I felt. With a little bit of a kicker. (laughs) I don't remember that happening the last time I drank. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, oh, my God. I'm starting to shake all over it. I call it, it's like the preludes to mushrooms, if any of you have ever had that little deal. <laughs> the hairs on my arms, they were just like standing up. in my. And I started getting these red bumps all over me. And I pulled my shirt up. I was like, oh, my God, oh, my God. And my heart feels like it's going to blow out of my chest. Then the next thing I know, it feels like somebody hits me with a baseball bat in my belly. And I just start. <laughs> Now, the clean version of this is that there was no orifice on my body left out. None. I laid there and I just absolutely thought I was going to die. I thought, oh my God, oh my God, I just, oh, I'll never do this again, I'll never do this again, oh, oh. And, uh, I'll have you know, I quit taking antibuse that next morning. (laughs) 
We waited a little while for that. And I believe that the big book says that we have but two alternatives. One is to go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other is to seek spiritual help. Now, those are two different surrenders. There'll come a time when you believe that you can still manage well. If I can just get my job back, if I could just do this, if I could do that. It's, it's that second, I don't, even, I don't call it the second half of the first step, but it's that unmanageable part. As long as I think I can still manage, I'm okay. Or there's the time when you just say, I can't do this anymore. And you will either seek a power greater than yourself, or you will seek alcohol like you never did before. And alcohol became my master. I was 25 years old, 24 years old, and I, I couldn't steal enough to get enough. I couldn't, I, I couldn't run away far enough. It's like, it's like that carrot I was talking about, except it was that sense of ease and comfort. It didn't come the same way it did before. I couldn't get enough of it to make that all go away. It seemed like all of a sudden now everything that I had done that was so wrong and so bad that everybody else had outweighed that and I couldn't out drink it anymore. And I surrendered to alcohol and I said, please take me away, please take me away, please take me away. And I couldn't. I'd come back to my mom's and my mom would say, you know what, I love you with my heart and soul, but I cannot watch you kill yourself. Don't, don't come back here anymore. And what happened was is that somehow or another I ended up in my grandmother and grandfather's house. And I went, you can always count on grandma, you know. I went to grandma's and I went in there and I said, Grandma, can I just take a shower? Oh, yeah, come on in, mijo. Come on in, take a shower. Let me make you something to eat. And so I went in there. My grandpa was sitting in there, and he's watching the ball game. Now, you see, my mom and dad got divorced when I was 10 years old. And my grandpa stepped right on in. Now, there were heroes. There was Bob, and there was Johnny, and Leo, and Billy, and all those other guys. But there went no hero like my grandpa. The grandpa did it. He knew everything. How did he just know that? He knows everything about everything. He just does everything. I saw him hit him. He was driving a nail and hit his thumb and just the hammer bounced out of his hand, you know. (laughs) You know, I'm just, oh, that's my grandpa. When I'm sitting in there, and my grandpa, he drinks a little. And I'm sitting in there, and he's drinking, and I haven't drank all day. I'm sitting in, and I I just wanted to rest. I just wanted a little breath just to take a shower. You see, Bob, he stunk. And I wasn't like him. But now I was getting more and more like Bob every day. I'm, I'm sniffing the clothes out of this big old LTD station wagon to see what I'm going to wear that day. And I come over to this, and I go to my grandma's, and my grandpa's sitting there, and he looks over at me and says, You know what's wrong with you, man? Oh, no. What, grandpa? You just got to be a man. You need to just get, you just need to be, grow up, man. You need to go. And I'm thinking, inside of me, I'm thinking, don't you think I know that? I already know that. I don't, man, I, and so I got up, and he got up, and somehow or another, I don't know what happened, we brushed each other, and he said, yeah, you know what you need? You need, you need a part of me, man. And I'm like, Grandpa, I'm not going to fight you, Grandpa. 
no, no, you know. And so I, I said, I'm leaving, and my grandma's screaming, and he's yelling, and everybody's just yelling like crazy. And we go outside, and he's yelling at me, and my grandma gets in the way, and he punches and hits my grandma. And I don't know what happened other than to tell you that something went off. And I don't know if it went off because of my grandpa and hitting my grandmother at that time or if it was just that other side of that thing that says, I I can't do it anymore. And I went off and I almost killed my grandfather. I beat him and kicked him. I broke his ribs. I kicked his eyes in. His mouth was hanging off. His teeth were broken. And he laid there in a pool of blood and they had to pull me off of him or I would have killed him. And I left there and I thought to myself, is this what life is about? What is this deal? And I, and I, I ended up in this little mall. I stole some money from this guy at a bar. Ended up in a motel room. A case of beer, a big old bag of weed, a bottle of Cuervo. And I just couldn't make it go away anymore. I couldn't make it go away anymore. I was physically drunk. I know that. I know that. I couldn't, you know, you know you can't talk and fall over and stuff. But it seemed like the more I drank, the more clear this crummy, expletive, expletive life was of mine. And I called my mom and I said, Mom, this is it. After tonight, you'll not have to worry about me anymore. And, you know, people talk about that cry about, you know, yeah, he was going to kill himself. It's just a cry for help, you know, or just he needs the attention. I wanted to die. I was going to die. This motel was right next to my mom and dad's house, and I went over to that motel room. I, went, I, I saw them leave, I guess, to go look for me or whatever it was. I went back over to their house. I grabbed one of my dad's guns. I went back to that motel room, and I sat there, and I thought to myself, when I finish this bottle, I'm going to do this deal. And then all of a sudden, it was like, I call this my Alice in Wonderland experience. The first lady in the treatment center, the first treatment center that I went to, her head was floating around the room. (laughs) Jails, institutions, and death. Oh, my. Jails, institutions, and death. Oh, my. Jails, institutions, and death. Now, I make that humorous today, but it wasn't all that funny at that moment, as you can now imagine. And I realized that they weren't talking about the jails I'd been locked up in for the fights and the DUIs and the domestic issues and all this other stuff. That's not the jail they were talking about. They were talking about this jail. You don't brush your teeth with hot water. (laughs) Institutions, they weren't talking about the psych wards that I've been locked up in. Or the belief that I'm this way because of this? They weren't talking about that. They weren't talking about the police. They weren't talking about, you know, just honor my, my football coach or anybody else. And they weren't talking about, when they talked about death, they weren't talking about me wrapping myself around some oak tree on the way home from a bar late one night. They were talking about the death I was living one day at a time. They were talking about the institution that says I'm this way because. They were talking about the jail that I lived in up here. 
And for the first time in my life, for whatever reason it was, I have no idea, no idea other than to say, God, if you're real, whatever you are, please help me. Because I can't do this another second. And I've been sober from that moment to this one. For deep down in every man, woman, and child lies the fundamental idea of God. It may be blocked by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things, but in every one of us it was there. You see, mine have been blocked by the calamity of all my life and the way I grew up and what had happened and the pomp of my arrogance to think that I am so much better because I brushed my teeth with cold water. I'm this way because of this and and on and on and on. And the worship of other things, that truck, that girl, that money, this, that, on and on and on and on. I was blocked by that. I couldn't know God. I had to hit the bottom I hit so that I could see that deep down He was here. Not out there. Was it something you get for good measure? It was something that all I had to do was believe in. And I said, if you're real, help me. And he did. And I ended up in treatment again. And I got out of treatment. I got back to, uh, I I went to treatment up in Albuquerque. I went back down to Las Cruces, about 250 miles. I went back down and I walked into a meeting on the Monday night men's stag meeting. And I go in this meeting and I'm sitting there and the topic that night is hitting bottom. (whistles) I'm qualified. If there's anybody that can tell you about hidden bottom, it's this 25-year-old. Because this guy, man, he knows what it's about. So, you know, it starts over here, comes around, I'm about third in line, it comes to me, and, and, and so I start my little, oh, I'm 25 years old, I have two wives and kids, I don't even know where they're at, and oh, my grandpa, and oh, I'm broken. And all of a sudden, like, from across the room, this guy gets up and starts walking at me. Shut up! Shut up! Shut up, you little boy! Shut up! And he reaches up in his eye, he grabs his glass eye, pops it out of his head, and starts holding it in my face. <laughs> shut up, you little boy! You, you don't know nothing about hitting bottom! Just shut up! He said, look at my fingers, I don't even know where they're at in my eye. I think I lost an in spin. He says, I've been a ski row for 28 years. 28 years I live in ski row, and you come in here and talk about your little girlfriends? You know nothing about hitting bottom. And I looked at him and I looked at that eyeball in my face. I said, I don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. I felt. It was like I felt the first time in my life felt these big, gigantic wads of cotton being pulled from my ears and stuffed in my mouth. And I sat there and I listened to him and I said, yes, sir. Yes, sir. That next morning, I went to the Arid Club and Ken C. was standing behind that counter. And I asked him, I said, Ken, will you be my sponsor? And he looks at me, he said, no, no way. I've been watching you for the last five years, dude, and uh, now, let somebody else have that pleasure. And I told him, I said, Ken, I'll do anything you tell me, anything. I don't care what it is. You just tell me, and I'll do it. And he looked at me, and reluctantly he shook his head. He says, the day you don't do what I tell you, you call me with the name of your new sponsor. I said, Okay. He said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to go to meetings and I want you to not drink in between. 
He says, if that means you have to go to an 8 a.m. meeting and then go again at noon because you're not too sure whether you'll make it from 8 a.m. to 5, then you go at noon. And if you can't make it from 5 to 8 or from noon to 8, then you go at 5. And on the weekends when we got those 10.30 and 12 o'clock meetings, he said, I suggest you be there. Go to meetings and don't drink in between. Okay? And then he took this book and he said, now... He said, I'm gonna, we're going to sponsor you, and we're going to use the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And he opened it up to the preface in the very first page. It says, uh, we're 100 men and women who... My God, I can't believe I... <laughs> we of Alcoholics Anonymous are more than 100 men and women who have recovered from a seemingly helpless, hopeless state of mind and body. To show other alcoholics precisely how we have recovered is the main purpose of this book. And we are going to be precise about this book. Any more would be my ego. Any more would be my ego. And there's no room for ego in this, Joe. We're going to use the book Alcoholics Anonymous. And I say this, and I say this very arrogantly, and I do it every time I talk because I just believe it with all my heart. If you are sponsored in Alcoholics Anonymous without the book Alcoholics Anonymous, you're not sponsored. He took this book and he showed me, he said... Look, he said, you've got it all backwards. He said, you know, Ken's definition of life. He said, you think that life is, that your life is unmanageable because you, if you could get this back and get that back and all these things, then it'll be okay. He said, yeah, you're powerless over alcohol. Do you, do you get that? And I said, oh yeah, I got that one. He said, but you got, you got it all wrong. You see, life, the definition of life is this. He says, it's the emotional, physical, and spiritual makeup of a human being. And you're trying to fix the outside so that your inside is okay. You're trying to manage the outcome so that you'll be okay on the inside. And you set yourself up with expectations. And those expectations drive you. And you're driven by fear because you can't make it happen. When you see the powerlessness of your own, emotion, of your own emotions and your own spirituality and your own body, you'll turn it over to a power greater than yourself. I never thought of it that way. Duh. And they're another spiritual experience. And the next thing I know is that they take this piece of paper, and I carry this thing with me all the time. And they took this piece of paper, and he said, you know, and he, he read to me, for deep down in every man, woman, and child is a fundamental idea of God, blocked by calamity, pomp, and worship of other things. And he said, he said, take this piece of paper, and on one side, write what you think God is. Okay. He said, and on the other side, write what you think God isn't. Okay, well, he certainly isn't that guy at the church, you know. And he's certainly not this, and he's certainly not that, and he's certainly not that. Well, who good? And what do you think he is? And so I wrote. I took the piece of paper. I handed it to him. He never even looked at the piece of paper. He ripped it in half, handed me the God is, and he said, now make a decision to turn your life and will over to the care of that power. You see, making a decision to me had always meant that I had to go from this raving, maniacal, crazy lunatic to goody two-shoes. And that means that tomorrow morning when I wake up, I'm never going to look at that girl again. I'm never going to do that again. Oh, I'm going to just be this. <laughs> the road to heaven is straight and narrow. I heard that a million times. Well, it ain't going to fit me in it. 
And I've got this idea. You know, and so now it's like, no, I can't argue religion with you when it's my own concept of God. The greatest miracle of all things that I believe, just for me, that ever happened in Alcoholics Anonymous is when Abby Thatcher told Bill Wilson, why don't you choose your own conception of God, Bill? Because when that happened, Bill couldn't argue. And Bill was like, I know, I, I was like Bill, argued. Oh, yeah, but yeah, but yeah, oh, yeah. I'll argue, I'll argue a cucumber. I don't know what the point is, but there's got to be one and I'll find it. And by the time you leave, you'll be scratching your head thinking, you know, he could be right. <laughs> but I can't argue my own conception of God. And making a decision was just about turning it over. And when I did that, it says now, unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things that have been blocking us, we may not overcome drinking. So I had to get to the fourth step. Ken told me you have seven days. Seven days. And this is what I want you to do. And he showed me the book again. He said, I want you to take a piece of paper, I want you to draw three columns on it, and I want you to write the, what the resentment is, what the cause is, and what it affects, just the way the book says. I said, okay. He said, I also want you to start thinking about, on the eighth day, who you're going to do your fifth step with. I said, well, I already know who I want to do it with. No offense to you, I said, but I want to do it with Roger. And Roger was the one-eyed skid row wino. <laughs> and he said, okay, that, I think that's a great choice. So I did my, my four-step, and I went to Roger, and, and I'm sitting there with Roger. And Roger lived in this little one-room, little uh, efficiency apartment. He had a big cheap tablet and a big husky pencil. He says, okay, what are we going to do? I said, well, the book says that I'm supposed to tell you all my life story. He said, that good, good, good. He said, okay, let's get started. So I start telling him. This is my resentment. This is the cause. This is what it affects. My sex ambition. Da, 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 pocketbook, you know, personal finances, esteem, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Now, in the fourth column at the top, I want you to write my faults. <laughs> what? Yeah, right there in the fourth column. You see, there's room for another column right there. You write right there in the top. It says, my faults. <laughs> Didn't you hear? I just told you what they did to me. How could I have thoughts in that? What are you talking about? No, right here. Now we're entirely ready to look at it from a different angle. We saw what part we played, where we were selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and self... And you see right there in the book, it says it. <laughs> and all of a sudden I thought, well, maybe Ken and Roger conspired against me, you know? <laughs> and so he said, where are you at fault? And I sat there and I, I, I didn't have a fault. How old were you when that happened, he said. I was like five or six. He said, how old are you now? I said, 25. He says, for 20 years, you've been using that to justify your life, to justify things in everybody and then use it against everybody else, and you got no faults? Huh. I, I didn't look at it that way. <laughs> He said, were you at fault? It says right here, selfishness and self-centeredness. That we think is the root, the root. You see right there, the root. If you take a pecan, he says, if you take a pecan and you plant it in the ground, what does it grow? Pecans? Yeah, that's good, that's good. 